In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. When I say, that wasn't like me, it's usually something thoughtless or selfish. And I have made Paul's point for him. And I'm probably ready for the general confession. We have done those things which we ought not to have done and have left undone those things we ought to have done. That wasn't like me is nearly always not my best self. I know better. To be fair, there are times when what is right requires that we balance and decide among competing demands on our time, resources, or attention. Sometimes we know and cannot do, and sometimes we cannot know all the implications. I want to do the right thing and still not able to take into account all that my decision entails. Ought may not be obvious. Paul captures our frustration, our confusion or regret at choices and actions. For what I would, that I do not, and what I hate, that I do. Not all the time, but most of us at some point will stand with Paul baffled at ourself. Paul has a much more nuanced and serious understanding of sin than popular culture does. We know about the wrong things that we or others might do. We joke about an indulgent dessert or skipping a work meeting. But Paul looks at something that's far deeper in the human condition, where our desires and our actions, our connections to other people, our participation in whatever family, civic, economic, or cultural context when that becomes confusing or even disconcerting. Sin, the prayer book reminds us in the baptismal service, ranges all the way from personal sinful desires to the powers of this world that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God to the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God. Far more than chocolate cake. Page 302 if you want to check the reference in the prayer book. We are human, creatures of this world and participants in many, any number of interlocking communities and systems. There are decisions we make and there are habits and patterns that we don't even see. Paul believes, Paul knows that we are that better person we long to be, but we are human, almost always more complicated than we would wish. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do good, Evil lies close at hand. Without losing sight of the sheer beauty of human life and the wonders of this world, Christian faith takes evil and its cancerous presence seriously. But Paul is writing towards hope. And the best of what he writes, maybe in all of his writing, is on for next Sunday. While it's not great collegiality to steal another preacher's thunder, Sorry, Jay. Next week, we read the very next thing that Paul says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And further along in that chapter, he asserts, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are far more than the worst we have done. We're far more than the tangle of injustice and cruelty that blocks human flourishing. All of that is real and calls for honesty and repentance. Yet none of it holds back 
God's love for us, and all of it is transformed in Christ. Thanks be to God is where Paul ends up after looking squarely at our life. We are not wrong when we look at the worst we have done and say, that wasn't like me. The good news is that God knows the best that is in us. God knows you in reality and in the beauty of God's own intentions for who you can be. And because we stand in Christ, baptized into his body, there is forgiveness and strength for amendment of life. There is therefore now no condemnation, Paul says, and we can answer thanks be to God. Evil can distract, corrupt, and rebel. And we will be drawn into it and sometimes walk into it entirely too willingly. We will suffer its effect. But because God has acted in Christ Jesus and worked the power of the Spirit, Paul ends with gratitude, not self-recrimination or fear. Thanks be to God, to our Lord Jesus Christ, there is now no condemnation. But that's not an easy thing to hear. Look at the gospel passage the lectionary gave us this morning. Jesus turns to the crowd. He's dealt with John's disciples who have come to ask him when John is in prison and doubting if this has all been headed in the right direction. His disciples go and say, are you the one or should we wait for another? And Jesus turns to the crowds. What an unsettled, distracted, and unappeasable, even childish mess they all were. This generation, he said, is not able to hear correction and or receive blessing. They're too self-involved to dance when the fiddle plays a jig or to grieve when the steel guitar plays a mournful ballad. What does it take for Paul to get out of his introspection that leaves him spinning between ought and is? What does it take for us to understand what God might want for our lives or our community for them to change and that we in our world are reflections of grace and intended for joy. Do you hear the music, the cadence of dance and lament? The learned and the wise are always busy listening what they know and judging what they don't know as either worthless or something to be acquired. Who can dance or mourn when they're caught up in themselves and condemning what they don't understand or fearful of what they need to grasp one more thing, read one more book. You don't want to hear John the Baptist in judgment. You don't believe Jesus when he comes rejoicing in the beauty of the lilies or seeking out the one lost sheep while 99 wait impatiently in the barn. We are wise enough to defend ourselves against judgment. I can explain. Or we're worried enough to have no patience with joy. We are so frustrating. And there was John's imprisonment and where that would go. All of that led Jesus to prayer. Despite it all, like the passage from Paul that we heard, it leads Jesus to a prayer of gratitude. I thank you, Father. Gratitude makes no sense in a world where John is imprisoned. People will not listen when they're far more sick and suffering than Jesus will ever be able to touch in the time that is his, gratitude makes no sense when we fail so often while trying to do what is right. Gratitude makes no sense when there seems so many dangers around us, and yet 
Paul sings out, thanks be to God, Jesus says, I thank you, Father. We might be childish at our worst, but at our best, we are childlike, able to look with wonder and curiosity, sure that we will be embraced and encouraged. You have revealed these things to infants, Jesus says. And what is revealed when God is the revelation is not more information or a theory, but an unbounded love that will embrace and transform us, that judges not to condemn, but to enable us to do what we want to do good. And then the word of invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Not do this, not learn that. Come to me. It is in knowing Jesus hearing him speak in the Gospels, letting his forgiveness get us past shame or guilt, letting his presence in the Eucharist sustain us down to our bones. There's nothing to prove, explain, defend, or improve for the moment. Here is gift, grace, peace, and hope. True, he goes on to ask us to take up the yoke the point of connection that keeps us moving in concert with him, the structure or pattern that it keeps us on track, moving towards something worthwhile. The yoke of Christ puts us to work, but this is rest for our souls because we have seen, known, and been held in love, and because he leads us to walk towards our best desires, the good we long to do, the self we long to see. Paul is right. We turn in too many directions and are caught in regret. And Paul is right that in Jesus there is grace, no condemnation, a love from which we will not be separated, and a life that ultimately turns towards what is good, true, and beautiful. And there, inspired to work, given space to breathe, able to mourn with hope, and dance with gratitude, there we find rest for our souls and hope for this life and for so much more. Amen.